If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let us explain. First of all, Tim, it's free. We love free. Ah, There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Did I mention that it's free? I did, didn't I? You did. Well, it's not only free. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much every other one. Many, many more. And you can make money from your podcast. That cheddar. Cha-ching. With no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the Anchor app for free or go to anchor.fm to get started. We love Anchor. Welcome back to Beyond Strange World. I am Tim Polari here today in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown with Lance Reen steering a Lance. How are you? I'm doing so well, uh, mostly because I got here okay. You <laughs> arrived okay. Yes. Because we do not drive cursed automobiles. Nor do we drive 90 miles an hour, hopefully. Uh, but joining us on the Skype hotline today is filmmaker Christopher Garitano from Travel Channel's Strange World. How are you, Chris? I'm doing well. Thank you. And we also have Lee Raskin, who was a guest. He was interviewed a couple of times for the latest episode, an episode that, Chris, you were so excited about when we first interviewed you. That would, This episode, when we said, what's coming up next, you were, you were all about this episode. And Lee Raskin is the authority on this topic. So welcome to Beyond Strange World, Lee, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, the interesting thing is that uh, when I was 10 years old, my sister was 12. And when James Dean died, she created the shrine in her room. And when I was on Good Behavior, she used to let me come in and look at the photos. <laughs> and I distinctly remember the photos of James Dean racing Porsches. And I was really into cars then. And that's something that has stayed with me for 63 years. Um, and today, there isn't, there isn't a day that goes by where I don't wake up. And the first thing on my computer on the internet is somebody contacting me about James Dean. So it, it has consumed me. And um, I always thought that I would put it down, but I can't. I can't, it, because there's always something new. And this episode of Little Bastard is really the epitome of what this whole thing is all about. It's the mystique and the curse and the myths, and uh, they're very much alive and they won't go away. And there's a whole new generation that finds James Dean, you know, so iconic. And I guess it's because he died when he was 24 and he's frozen in time. Yeah, that's a good point. We were talking about that earlier. Um, you know, speaking of legacies, you know, you can compare James Dean and Marlon Brando. And uh, it's like, what would you rather be? I mean, one one leaves the planet a lot earlier, but has this um, legacy that carries on. And like you said, like mostly due in part because he died, I think, at 24. 
And then Brando goes, you know, they both both brilliant actors. Brando goes on and has a career, but is kind of uh, known as a little bit of an embarrassment in his later uh, performances and, and such. And the topic of this episode is how James Dean died. And we jump right in with James Dean and, and when you were introduced to him through your sister. And you mentioned Little Bastard. I guess we have to find out, for those who don't know, what is Little Bastard? Why is this anything more than a car accident? And, and it's also the name of the episode, I just want to point out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're not talking. No one's <laughs> calling me a Little Bastard right now, as far as I know. Nor Lee or Chris. Right. But we can't. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe we're only a few minutes in, so <laughs> reserve that for later on if necessary. Um, so so the episode yeah. uh, was called Little Bastard on Travel Channel's Strange World. So, yeah, what is Little Bastard? So Little Bastard, uh, from my research, is what Jack Warner of Warner Brothers Studios was referring to James Dean himself when he was on the set. Was it a giant, Lee? Um. Actually, it's probably Rebel. Uh, he was on the set of Rebel Without a Cause in a trailer, which uh, was very similar to the one we looked at in the episode. Uh, and he was living on that trailer on the back lot. And he was staying there past his welcome time. So Jack Warner was saying, get that little bastard off my lot or off my set. And that's where it started. And then so James Dean decided to call his... Porsche 550 Spider of the same name that Jack Warner gave to him. That's interesting. I might also add that he he put it on his car and he said, you know, I'm I'm going to be a winner in this new Porsche, and everybody behind me is going to know who the little bastard is. <laughs> okay, so he liked the name, and uh, we know that he loved cars, um, Porsches specifically, right? Yeah, definitely. He definitely was into first motorcycles, and then he graduated into a an MGTD. He thought that was slow, and he bought one of the first new Porsche Speedsters, raced that, and then he said, I need something faster to win. And the faster version was the Porsche, the Spider, right? That's correct. And that's what, that's what Little Bastard was. Yes, and it was a very rare car. They had only made 90 in the entire series, and his car, ironically, was 550-0055. It was midway through the production run. Well, that sounds cursed immediately. <laughs> um, well, if it was 660, yeah, maybe. That'd be a little too obvious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Chris, we, uh, we know uh, how Lee got involved with James Dean and that and his legacy, this is something that is 60 years old. How did you get involved in being fascinated with James Dean and, and the accident? Okay, um, there are a few points to this. So growing up in uh, a, a family that celebrated movies, I mean, really celebrated them. I grew up in a video store. My parents owned one. And my mom was obsessed with Natalie Wood. So I saw Rebel Without a Cause a lot when I was a kid. And then going forward, Stephen King wrote a book called Christine that to this moment I'm obsessed with only not only his book it's fantastic but the movie by John Carpenter uh and it was a very different car but a similar situation there were a lot of James Dean references Rebel Without a Cause references in John Carpenter's movie so going forward when I was uh designing Strange World here in my office I talked to a friend who said you know 
because we would always talk about Christine and we'd always talk about cars and he knows, you know, I love cars and, 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 and old Hollywood stories. And he said to me, you know, I think that, uh, you should do an episode on the story of little bastard and James Dean's car. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like the car he died in? Cause I did, I wasn't aware of this legend that was forged after James Dean's unfortunate death. And, um, so that's where I learned of it. He pointed me in the direction, my friend. And so I started to do my own research, came across Lee's books, and I, I had to do an episode on it. Because, again, I, in my mind, it was this kind of real-life version of Christine, even though there are several out there. It, it really felt like it began with this, you know, this incredible obsession with a vehicle, which I, I understand. You know, I, 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 I drive a... Um, a Mustang uh, GT California special. And I, I love the car and I understand that fascination with vehicles and, and cars. And it's like, you know, that's where it begins, but then it turns into something else. And, and so that is a very similar theme, not only in Christine, but in the James Dean story, it's his obsession with cars. And isn't it strange how that's how he died? You know, like it was his, this magnificent obsession is also the road to his demise. So, and, and, and so I just felt like that entire arc, that entire detail and the fact that it's a true story that just that obsession and leading up to his death and, and such an unfortunate young, you know, death before his time. And so that's where it began for me. And I really wanted to look into it. Okay. So uh, Dean died on uh, September 30th. 1955. And just for anyone who doesn't know, James Dean was a uh, a movie star back in the 1950s, was in Rebel Without a Cause, East of Eden, and Giant, and died before Giant came out. Um, but he was uh, kind of uh, going going to be this huge movie star. I think that's kind of, it's a little bit of like a Marilyn Monroe comparison, I guess, right? Yeah, we were talking about how he probably would have turned into like a Paul Newman type where he has a solid, you know, body of work that he can uh, reflect back on and maybe do uh, other like social activism. So he just felt like that would be the type of person he would end up being. But when we were watching the episode and and you you guys cut to the PSA that he did, which is probably the the first haunting thing about the whole little bastard accident. Yeah. He does his PSA on safe driving, on safe driving, but the way he's carrying himself, I think this adds a lot to the James Dean, uh, Mystique, mystique, right? He's carrying himself, and you and he did this PSA before he died, and he died when he was twenty four. So I'm assuming he was twenty four or just turning twenty four at the time. He he looks like he looks like a seasoned like John Wayne type, like he he like a that, Marlboro Man yeah, vibe, like that prototype of of a man's man. And you're looking at him, and you're like, you're twenty four. I mean, he just the way he's carrying himself. I know how I acted when I was twenty four, and it was <laughs> not like that. Yeah, I mean. It was. I don't even remember being twenty four. <laughs> it was know? a different world. It's yeah, a totally a different, different world. world. But but Dean had this line in the public service announcement. He said, "Take it easy driving. The life you save could be mine." Now, Christopher, you said that that was an improv line. Yeah, I believe that was. Oh, okay. Lee, did you? Oh, 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 oh definitely. You know, was, okay. Uh, they were ending. They were ending the promo about safe driving, kids on the highway. And then Gig Young says to him, is there anything you'd like to say? And he's out, almost out the door and he has this little grin on his face and he says, take it easy driving. The life you might save might be mine. 
And then he laughs and shuts the door and Gig laughs and that's the end of it. And this is July, just two months before he died on the highway. So is sure. that is that the first indication of something more um, mysterious going on, something more ethereal that is uh, that is in this um, folklore? Is there is there well, anything pe- before that? Yeah, there's the 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 Alec Guinness story ah, that yes. I think. Uh, well, that PSA was shot before his encounter with Guinness, so that I guess I believe that is the first thing in the timeline. But I think the most profound thing is is uh, Alec Guinness, the actor who played Obi Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Uh, his encounter with Dean at a restaurant was it two days before he died, something like that. That's and, right. Uh, and Guinness looked at him. He was showing off his car, you know, like most a lot of us do when we, you, you know, you, you show it to the people you 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 know you're friends with, and you you know you want it, you're excited about it. And the last thing anyone's going to tell you, really, unless you're driving recklessly, is uh, you, you get back in that car, you're going to be dead in two days. But that's what happened. And um, I think that for me, that's where the whole legend begins. You know, the the idea of this car being cursed starts with that story, with 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 Sir Alec Guinness telling James Dean he would be dead in two days. And he was he he was gone. Right. So that's a good segue into the Alec Guinness story. Had they Lee, had they ever met before? Had, were, were they? No, it's an interesting story. Uh, James Dean and his best friend, Lou Bracker had a favorite restaurant. It was called Villa Capri in uh, North Hollywood. And um, they used to come through the back door, you know, and they always found space. That's the same restaurant where he met Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Marilyn Monroe. You know, it was was a, a very trendy place, you know, on a small scale back then. And to make a long story short, uh, Jimmy had just bought the car. They're having dinner as they as they normally did. They had a quick dinner at the Villa Capri, and uh, uh, Lou Bracker says to Jimmy, "Look, there's Alex Guinness at the doorway." And Jimmy looks up, and there wasn't any room. And they had turned Alex Guinness and his date away. And Jimmy says, "I'm going to go get him." And he runs out the door and he introduces himself. Now he knew who Alex Guinness was. Alex Guinness had no idea who James Dean was. And so he met him and said, look, you can come sit with us. We have plenty of room. And by the way, I want you to see my new Porsche Spider parked over here. And that's how it started. If Jimmy hadn't have left the table in such a rush to grab him, we wouldn't be talking about this curse. Now, we had an interesting conversation before we started this interview. We watched the episode and... And Tim brought up that Al- Alec Guinness mentions uh, that James Dean had never. He he says to him, "I haven't I haven't driven it yet. Or I haven't even been in. I it. haven't even been in it. Is that is that true? Had he not even been in the car? And how did are, are well, we? I, I was wondering how the car got hairs? there. Yeah. yeah, we're probably splitting hairs. But I was wondering how the car got there if he had never been in it. Well, Jimmy Jimmy had just bought the car, and so he came and parked it. And they, you know, like in California, they gave him a special spot, you know, near the door. (laughs) Yeah. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories that associate that it had uh, plastic cover over it and roses. I don't know whether that's true or not. It's really not that important. What's really important is that conversation did take place. And Alex Guinness was taped later in, in years in interviews where he recollected the conversation. And Lou Bracker's best friend verified couldn't verify what went on outside, but verified the conversation inside. 
And he did say, excuse me, that Jimmy was shaken, you know, by the what Alex Guinness said to him. He said he wanted to slough it off, but he couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, they, they play footage in the episode. It's uh, it's excellent, actually, seeing him really tell the story. Um, Alex Guinness tell the story of uh, his interaction with James Dean. Sure. And before we go any further in this, because I know we're going to start getting into speculation and what might be true and what Us? might not be true and opinion what? and perspective. <laughs> I want to ask Lee. So you believe that that could have been a, that was a premonition that that wasn't um, some kind of self-fulfilling or pr- prophecy on the part of Alec Guinness telling, suggesting that he might die and maybe making James Dean a little bit more reckless. Do you believe that that Guinness really did feel something at that point? something a little more mysterious? Oh, I do. I I do believe that. Unlike you, I'm not superstitious, but I do believe in (laughs) premonitions. Um, And I think it had a profound effect on James Dean that night. But I have to tell you, with all that was going on and the excitement of going to this race, that was probably the farthest thing from James Dean's head when, in fact, it came time for the accident. Thank you. So that is a pretty spooky thing to just say to someone, huh? Like someone that you never even met. How did did he know? Did Alcides know that James Dean was a big racer at that point, or he just happened to show him like a a brand new, like a uh, fancy, uh, cool looking sports car, and that's when he said that. My take is that Alex Guinness wasn't into cars. He was more concerned that night about having a hamburger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, it could have been this off-the-cuff remark, like, yeah. I see a Porsche, I understand that a Porsche is fast, this young kid is obviously excited about it, you know, maybe I'm just going to throw him a word of warning, but just that alone is enough to be like, why would you even do that? Yeah, and see, who but, knows? But Guinness yeah. claims it wasn't just something right. like that, that he felt something took it over his voice. That is true, he does yeah. He does uh, say that, yeah. Well, there's no question, because he, he not only said, if you get in that car, you're going to die, he he even told him when he was going to die. Right. He was. He was. It was almost like a bullseye. He was on the money. Okay, Lee. You you mentioned that you're not superstitious, and I think your T-shirt would be proof of that because you're wearing a a T-shirt that says "Little Bastard." Uh, you've uh, you've written um, how many books on James Dean? There well, he is. I have um, I have three books. The first book was actually more about Porsches, but it included James Dean. Okay. And then I then everybody. Everybody said, Lee, you can do better than that. And so I I wrote uh, a book for the 50th anniversary in 2005. And then uh, as soon as I wrote that, I knew that I wanted to go beyond the epilogue because it stopped at his death. And I really wanted to get into the specifics about how he died. And then I did that um, 10 years later. And that would have been, um, you know, just... Uh, just recently, and and the most important thing, I don't think any, not too many people know this. I just finished a book for the Porsche Museum. Oh, cool! And they've asked me to write about James Dean. However, they're they've never been keen about Dean dying in their car. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that, that, and so that's they've asked me to stop after he traded in his Speedster for the Spider. And I've done that in one simple paragraph. Yeah. But it really is a wonderful story about James Dean's passion for speed and about his racing. And it gets into a lot of the interviews with racers that knew him. And um, it really it really shows the, uh, the, uh, the personification 
of what this is all about before he died. And uh, where can we get your books? Well, um, you know, that's up to Portia. They've been a little slow in getting it published. I wanted to publish it right away because they're coming out with a brand new 2020 anniversary speedster. Uh, and they're only making 1,948 units. That would be um, that would uh, represent the first year of Porsche, 1948 at Gamund. Uh, these cars are going to sell for $275,000 a piece, and they're all sold out. Well, awesome! Crawl Space Media has <laughs> bids on a couple of those. So yeah. once we get them in uh, in the mail, we'll. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyone <laughs> anyone uh, listening, go uh, go lobby uh, Porsche and tell them uh, get those books out there. WTF. But the previous books, Lee, where you can get those on Amazon, right? Oh yeah, my my books are the first, actually. It's interesting. Just this week, um, the the sale of my first book has been uh, stopped because I'm out of them. Oh wow! Um, well, that's a good problem to have. Congrats. Yeah, I sold I sold out, and I have to make a decision as to whether we're going to reprint the second book. Is very much alive. It's on Amazon, eBay, and through my publisher, which is Stance and Speed. Okay. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, so I guess my got question. Got right here. Yeah. Oh, there oh, you go. Got him right there. Fantastic book by Lee Raskin. On the road to Salinas. One. Bigger coffee table. Very cool. James Fantastic. Dean at speed. So okay. you you have a little bastard shirt on. Uh, Chris touches a piece of little bastard in the episode, which he didn't really want to do, but he did. Um, of course, uh, Chris is superstitious. Lee, you said you're not. Lee, do you have? W- would you touch Little Bastard? I guess is my question. Oh yeah, and I, I've touched the same piece oh, you have. that you've touched. So you've actually, you know, touched me. Um, <laughs> the the interesting thing about that piece is that um, I saw the piece when it first was resold, and it was sold to the James Dean Gallery in Fairmont, Indiana. And through another set of circumstances, it was resold to the Heritage Museum in Illinois. Um, but it's um, it was uh, basically it was um, it's an interesting story. There was a a young uh, teenager was working for the telephone company, and he heard about the crash, and he knew that the cars were taken to the Shalem garage, and he snuck in there, and he sees this piece, and he took his hand and sort of took it and he kept it. He kept it for all these years. I mean, decades. And there are stories that came up, you know, this piece was a curse and, you know, it, it, it did bad things for him and, you know, cancer, lost a job, his wife left him. I'm not sure that all happened, but the fact is it's the only piece that I know of that car that has been discovered. Hmm. The car has gone and this is the piece that exists. And I personally verified that it's real. I mean, you can tell by the primer, it's a green primer, and I knew exactly where it came from. It came from the cowling of the windshield. So it's uh, it's interesting. And yeah, yeah, I would touch it. I, that doesn't bother me. Okay. So we, we all know that James Dean died in a car accident. Lee, how did the accident happen? For anybody who doesn't know, because, you know, people know James Dean, three movies, died in a car accident. What was going on that day? How did he get into this accident? Well, there's a lot going on. Here's the short version. Um, he had bought the car and on September 21st and immediately signed up for a race on October 1st and 2nd in Salinas. 
Now, he wanted to get back to Salinas because that's where he filmed his first movie, East of Eden, in Mendocino. So it was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of an ego thing. And he really hadn't uh, driven that car. That was a big step up from his speedster, very powerful. And it would have been the only spider in the race. And it was a race at the uh, Salinas Municipal Airport. It was a first-time race. And so he had planned to go, and he had an entourage that went with him, including a Porsche-trained mechanic, Rolf Witterick, who worked for the Competition Motors where he bought the car. So the plan was to have the car prepped early in the morning, and they would leave around 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and drive up to Salinas. That's uh, over 300 miles. Why did they drive? Well, they needed to put miles on the engine. They needed to break it in. If, if, if that weren't an issue, it would have been put on a trailer and towed up. And they had actually had the station wagon pulling the trailer, but it was empty. So James Dean and the mechanic went ahead and then his um, driver was Bill Hickman. Another interesting story, Bill Hickman was the famous stunt driver in Steve McQueen's Bullet that drove the, the Dodge that crashed into the gas station. Anyway, he was the driver of the station wagon and James Dean always had a photographer. And in this situation, it was, it was the legendary Hollywood photographer, Sanford Roth, who was gonna do a story for Collier's Magazine. So they, they left. And it's a question about when they left. I have I've really pinpointed this minute by minute. Uh, they wanted to leave around noon. They didn't leave until 10 minutes of two. And uh, the first stop uh, was at a gas station around 2.30. In between that time, the photographer took some photos, some very famous photos. It took me 20 years to figure out the sequence of those photos, but I did. And then there weren't any photos, the famous gas station photo that you've seen at the mobile station with him standing next to the car, that was done in color. And, and there's another confusion. Like I found out that the photographer Roth was only shooting black and white. So where did the color come from? And there are two other photos that were taken before that sequence. And at first I thought it would take, they were taken with James Dean's camera, but no, they were taken by the mechanic he was a German and he had a 35 millimeter Leica. Mm -hmm. In those days, we didn't know from 35 millimeters. We were still using Brownie Hawkeyes. And he took the photos in front of uh, competition motors and then the famous photo at the gas station. Then they got back in the car and at 3.30, they were ticketed on uh, Highway 99 and both James Dean and the station wagon were ticketed for exceeding the speed limit. So there's something that's definitive at 3.30 because we have a, a speeding ticket with that, with that time on it. Then he actually took a shortcut, um, which was called the Racers Road. And I have to tell you, I'm the first person to really discover that based on some conversation with other racers. They didn't go through Bakersfield because Bakersfield had a stoplight at every corner. It was too slow. So this was a shortcut. And they were able to really, you know, go fast, 80, 90 miles an hour because it was just a country road with cattle and oil wells along the way. They stopped at a place called Blackwell's Corner at Route 466 and 33, and they it was a pit stop. And then they um, had a Coke 
And so they left a little bit after five o'clock, having met two other racers that were also going to the Salinas race. And they said, we'll meet at Paso Robles for dinner around six o'clock. The Paso Robles would be on Highway 101, and it would have been a little more than an hour away. So, but they were going faster, so it was less than an hour. What happened was that Lance Reventlow and Bruce Kessler left in a Mercedes, and then James Dean left. My theory is that James Dean really wanted to catch them, and that's why he was really honking. So he went over over a mountain, uh, it's called Polonio Pass, and then a long grade to what I call the flats. It was, some people call it an intersection, it's actually a junction where uh, a road comes in a Y off of 466. Now, I've been in car accidents and crashes on the public roads and I've raced cars. So whenever you have an accident, it happens very quickly. And that's what happened here. James Dean may have been going 85 or 90 miles an hour, passing cars along the way. He saw oncoming cars. He sees this Ford, a 1950 Ford, that was gonna make a left turn. Now he didn't have his blinker on, but the man had crossed over the line and he wasn't making a left-hand turn. He was just sort of going in on an angle and pretty fast. And supposedly James Dean said to the mechanic, he'll stop, he'll see us. Well, he didn't. And what happened was he got in front of James Dean and James Dean at 90 miles an hour had to make a split decision. Do I go right or do I go left? to avoid him. He went to the right because he saw more pavement, but his car lost control and it came around and he hit the other car practically head on. Now, if we take a step back, the other car was driven by a 23 year old student who was rushing to leave uh, Cal Poly to go home for the weekend. And he took this route every single Friday and he was wasn't used to seeing a low slung sports car approaching at 90 miles an hour. So he felt that he could get across. He spiked his brakes because he realized something was going to happen. Then he got back on the gas. Then he hit the brakes again. He was practically at a stop when James Dean ran into him. Wow. It was, it was a horrific crash. I mean, can you imagine the Ford was probably going about 55 or 60 and Dean was at least going 85. The, the Porsche went up in the air and flipped over in midair and then was pushed in a direction. And it, it traveled 40 feet after the crash. And the Ford, which is a three-ton automobile, was pushed back 45 feet. It's incredible. Just incredible. And and the mechanic, James Dean's passenger, he was thrown from the vehicle and, and according to the show, did not lose consciousness. Well, um, he was... Yeah, the car, the car, you know, whether he was catapulted or whether he fell out, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a question of conjecture, but the car did turn over. Now, he did fall out, and he landed five feet from the car. The car could have landed on top of him, but it didn't. Jesus. So he's yeah. lucky there. He was seriously hurt. His, his face hit the dashboard. He lost all his teeth. His jaw was broken. Uh, his his leg was broken, practically turned all the way around. Oh my God! Uh, he was really in bad shape, uh, and and suffered head trauma for the rest of his life. 
Now, everyone says, well, um, what about Dean? Well, Dean had a seatbelt, but he wasn't wearing it, but he stayed in the car, and there's a reason, a good reason why he stayed in the car. His left foot was crushed between the brake and the clutch pedal from the accident. So he was like an anchor. He's a captive in the car. Now, this is where the story gets a little confusing because eyewitnesses said the other man was driving, the man with the red shirt, which would be the mechanic, not James Dean. And that story has been perpetuated for a lot of years. But because his foot was trapped, it's evident that the police saw that, and so did the ambulance attendant who had to use a crowbar to extricate, extricate it. Um, it. You know, it's it's a simple accident, but all of a sudden it becomes complex. Was he yeah. driving? How fast was he going? Why did it happen? But the mechanic, though, he said he was the passenger? He definitely was the passenger. Yeah. Now, he was, he was in and out of consciousness. I mean, he was really hurt bad. Um, and he can't remember the events like many of us couldn't event, couldn't recall trauma. He couldn't remember exactly what happened going up in there. The interesting thing is there was a husband and wife that Dean had just passed before the accident, and he was uh, an accountant. He was a fairly intelligent guy. They were on their way up to the state of Washington. They saw the whole thing. They saw the whole thing, and they filed a deposition in in. Uh, in the north, in the northwest, but because there wasn't any Federal Express in those days, they mailed it, and it didn't get into the court in time for the inquest. So their testimony was never was never heard, and it really shed light on exactly what happened. They said there were no brake lights on Dean's car, which meant that he was still on the gas when the accident happened. That he didn't have time to brake or to move over. Jeez, and what happened to the uh, the kid driving the Ford? Well, he was driving a big car. His nose smashed against the windshield and the steering wheel, and he, you know, he got cut pretty badly. But he, but he wasn't hurt. You know, he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't hurt where he needed assistance. And it's, it's interesting. The car was just sitting in the street. He got out. There are photos of him, and he he actually wound up after the police interview. He wound up hitchhiking home after this accident, and he didn't know who Bizarre. James Dean was wow. until until people started to say, "That's James Dean." Oh yeah. my God! Wow! Could you imagine that? That's insane. That's that is an insane story. That I I think that does a, a lot for the uh, for the folklore, and I think it does a lot for anyone who is listening who just kind of you know on, on the surface level knows about James Dean and, and the accident. Just to put it in that like human context, yeah, I couldn't even imagine. So it's drive like, drive safe, especially if you're listening to this while driving. Make sure you drive safe. Be be cautious. Don't speed. Yeah. Um, but now is really where the mystery kind of takes takes over in this uh, episode and. And with this, um, the case of Little Bastard. So, uh, where do you go from here, Chris? Well, you, you, I mean, you said it. It's very important that you start with this is a, a tragic story. This is a, a talented young man who lost his life at 24 years old in this horrible accident. And I never wanted to forget that. And I didn't want the audience to forget that. So, we, we, we needed to talk about James Dean, who he was, the legacy he left behind what he was doing, his obsession with this car, obsession with racing, 
how talented he was and how tragic that moment was. Like I wanted I, to do my best to have the audience feel the heaviness of that moment of what happened. So moving forward, of course, you know, this forges the space for James Dean to become this Hollywood legend. I mean, he was going to anyway, but this was something that really thrust that because this tragic moment brought so much attention to his work that was barely even out in the world yet. And um, I think the first people to acquire what was left of Little Bastard, if I'm not mistaken, was William Estridge. Was that with the first person? He was a doctor. And I think the most prominent thing that happened after that was that he was cannibalizing parts of what was left of the car. The engine was still intact and working. And so he removed it. The doctor removed it from Little Bastard and put it inside a Lotus. And now this hasn't been confirmed 100%, but what is true is that Estridge had a friend who also had a Porsche 550 Spider. Now, you can safely assume that maybe since Estridge was taking parts from the car, his buddy may have ripped a few off himself, you know, whatever he needed it for. But the truth is, and this is this is not speculation, is that they were both in a horrible accident in a race not too long after where the Lotus that had the engine of Little Bastard inside of it crashed and his friend who was driving the Porsche 550 Spider crashed and died in that race. Now, I want to hear Lee's 100% researched version <laughs> of that, but this is what I know. Well, the, it, it is correct. It is. And this is where the story makes the hair stand up on your arm. It's just incredible. It's incredible. So the accident happened on September 30th. There's a lot of speculation about the car. Well, it, you know, if you've ever been in an accident and the car is totaled, the insurance company takes it. It's totaled. So that's what happened. The car was totaled. They paid off the father, who was the next living relative. And the car basically wound up at a salvage yard, and it was for sale. Well, Dr. William Esbridge was a surgeon, but he also was a very serious sports car racer. And he raced against James Dean. He knew James Dean. He knew the car. He knew the value of what it could be for him. He snapped on it. He bought it right away in November from the salvage yard. Now, there's speculation about who bought it. I'm telling you, I saw the bill of sale. I, I have a copy of it. I know that Dr. Esbridge bought it. And why? Well, he bought what was known as a roller. A Lotus was made in England without an engine. You could put any engine in it at all. He bought it a roller. And he said, you know what? I'm going to put this Porsche engine in there. That's unheard of. Nobody's ever done that before. A Porsche is a rear engine car, you know? So he was very mechanical. He was a surgeon and he also was mechanical. So he had, he had some people helping him. And fortunately, I was able to interview some of those people. So I've gotten the story pretty, pretty straight. So he took the mechanical parts that he needed for this Lotus and the rest of the parts that were still in good shape, basically the rear portion of the car that wasn't damaged, he lent or gave those parts to his best friend, another surgeon, Dr. Troy McHenry, who was racing a 550. And 
wanted to be. He was a wannabe racer. He wanted to be as good as Dr. Eskridge and some of the other drivers like Ken Miles and Richie Ginther, but he wasn't. So he's a very smart man. What did he decide to do? He decided to lighten up his 550, which weighed 1,300 pounds. He took off metal and replaced it with fiberglass because he wanted to be as fast as Dr. Eskridge. That doesn't sound safe. So in October, uh, October of 1956, they raced at the Pomona Fairgrounds, and it's interesting. I, now, I don't know whether you used that footage that you showed me, but there was footage of that actual race of Dr. Eskridge and Troy McHenry. And McHenry was like in third or fourth place. Eskridge was in first and second place. So they call that nose-to-tail racing, first and second. In, on the third lap, Dr. McHenry was waving frantically to his pit crew as he went by, something's wrong. The next thing is he crashes into a tree and kills himself. So does anyone know what was wrong? That's how the curse started. But if you back it up, he he had disassembled his car. He had lightened it up. And when it came to putting the steering mechanism back, he put the bolts in but he didn't put the nuts in. So so on, on the third lap, the bolts came out. He lost his steering. Why didn't oh he my put God. the nuts in? He was in a hurry. He was in such a hurry to get this car into the race, and he practically did everything by himself. He And I've done this too. You know, I remember putting wheels on a car and driving and realizing, you know what, I didn't tighten them up. <laughs> Jeez. It happens. It just happens. It was... A, it was it's, it, you know, it's what I call, it's, it's, it's just, it's an unguarded moment. It was an unguarded moment for Dr. Uh, McHenry. He just rushing and he didn't tighten up, didn't put the nuts on. And it, he lost his steering and died. Now, I found that out by talking to the officials that looked at the wreck and some of his crew members. But most people don't know that happened. How did it happen? It was cursed. Yeah. Could that- be. Could be. Okay, yeah. Sir Alec Guinness, this begins with Sir Alec Guinness saying, you're going to be dead in two days. Then he dies in two days. Then the two guys, the doctors, good doctors, take the car and cannibalize it for their race. And then they crash, and one of them dies. I don't know. So Except let me just let me just interject. So back, back to Dr. Eskridge. He's racing Richie Ginther, nose to tail, first and second. He doesn't know that his best friend died. He's still racing, and they, somewhere in the middle of the race, uh, Dr. Eskridge was in first. He lost it, got into some loose gravel, hit some hay, and the car boomeranged back, and he got hit by uh, Richie Ginther, who was behind him, and they both smashed up their cars to the point that they couldn't race anymore. And then when Dr. And they weren't hurt. They were not hurt. And contrary to a lot of stories, they were not hurt. The car didn't turn upside down or anything. They walked away. And when Dr. Estridge got to the pits, he heard the bad news that his best friend died. And he stopped racing at that moment. Wow. Okay. So he, he sort of read the tea leaves there a little bit and stopped racing. And that's uh, probably wise on his part. 
Yeah, like I, I'm, I'm. It's surprising to me that two surgeons or doctors are, are that into racing. I know we're talking a long time ago, but it kind of makes sense to me personality wise that actors would be into racing because there's like a thrill seeking um, yeah, element to it. Into it. I yeah. would hope that wouldn't it, be the case with surgeons, but apparently I'm wrong. Is another factor. Racing is not a cheap sport. Yeah. Right. right. Okay, so we're racing six or seven thousand dollar cars. It takes a professional from the 1950s or someone that inherited a lot of money to be able to do that. And so racing in those days, East and West Coast, was a privilege for wealthy individuals. I see. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Well, so tell us about George Barris. Um, Christopher, you went to George Barris's old shop and you spoke to his daughter, Joji. Um, who had some interesting things to say about uh, her dad and his work. Sure. Well, I, I, I'll start with, um, if anyone, then just some references. If, if you don't know George Barris by name, you know his cars, everything from the Batmobile to Grease Lightning to the cars and the Monsters to even a more obscure stuff like the, uh, the, the car in the movie Cobra with Sylvester Stallone. Nice. You call that obscure? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> people don't. They're not aware of that. Well, I don't want to know those people. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I grew up looking at all of those cars, and I think Barris was was a visionary. However, when you have someone like that with a lot of other people working underneath him, there's always this conflict because he's the guy who comes up with this big vision and might draw it on a napkin, and that's the thing that forges what it eventually becomes. But unfortunately, sometimes when you have that personality and he was that, you know, that kind of spike of a personality that would always command all of these things and then take credit for them in the end, because he was the guy that started it. People would argue with it in the end, saying that wasn't his vision. I don't know. After reading a lot of stuff about him and doing my own research, I feel like it's that is typical of someone who is a, a, a has a huge vision and has a lot of people working underneath him that sometimes like much like Walt Disney people will turn around and say, well, that wasn't his idea, that was mine. And that remains to be seen, but I think Barris was responsible for a lot of interesting cars. So he gets involved with trying to own the James Dean car, Little Bastard, what was left of it, the chassis. And from there, he does acquire it. He acquired it from Estridge, correct? Yeah, he did acquire it, and he told Estridge, and no one seems to know how those two met they didn't really know each other you know on a racing level professional level the interesting thing is that uh, george said i'm going to put this car back together again and then he realizes that was a herculean task it was impossible it was too much so he created he created uh an image for this car through the national safety council so and that and that's where that's where it was reborn. It was reborn at that point. And did George Barris uh, work with James Dean on uh, on on Rebel? Was he responsible for those drag cars? Um, he was a consultant on Rebel and did some minor custom work. But I I uh, have to say I interviewed I interviewed some cast members. Frank Mazzola was involved in that whole project, and he had, he was in a gang at Hollywood High, and uh, Frank is now deceased, but I I befriended him and, and was friends with him for many years, and he said he 
he doesn't remember George Barris on the scene, on the, on the set. And so hmm. that's been embellished. But George was involved in customizing those cars. Okay. All right. And so George then uh, takes the car, and you said that he it's reborn through the National Trans- Safety, Safety Tra- Council. Safety Council. So he physically is in contact with this car. Definitely. And there's some yeah. strange so, stuff that so happens. This becomes this becomes a business. I mean, yep. George, I think, was a premier promoter, you know, for what he was doing. And what he did was he he had a little travel. I call it a traveling circus. It was a car circus. I remember as a kid going. I lived in Baltimore. I went to the Baltimore Auto Show every year, and I remember seeing that the James Dean little bastard. Coming to the show, George bought brought a half a dozen or more cars in a tractor trailer, and he went to car shows. It's just like you being in a rock and roll band and you're playing a gig every night, you know. Right. And that's what George did. It was a living, and it also promoted his business beyond California. So how did he how did he lose the car? <laughs> Go well, ahead. <laughs> story goes he was taking the car around for these road safety exhibits and of course it was the james dean car that you know where james dean met his demise so it was a famous car and apparently it was leaving miami uh in a truck they were transported inside a truck and when it got to a way station in washington uh it was gone and that's the story that's the story behind it However, uh, Lee and other people who have researched this for many, many, many years believe that George Barris had something to do with the car disappearing, that this was uh, some kind of publicity stunt to forge this curse. I, I, I can agree with that to, to some extent, but I, fi- I find holes in that explanation, and I can tell you why. But I want Lee to, you know, since Lee is here, I, I, you know, I think it's important that people hear what he knows, and, and I'll say what I have to say. I'd like to share some stories that no one's heard. Oh, and this okay. is good. It's good for your show. Exclusives. Um, when I first got involved in this, I knew who George Barris was. I had never met him. And I did my first documentary uh, in the uh, mid-'80s. In the mid-'80s. And I met George Barris, and I met... Everybody. I didn't realize who people were. You know, they called me in to talk. I, I guess I knew a little bit, but I didn't know what I know today. And then I listened to what George Barris said, and they gave me the outtake. So I got to listen to the whole thing. And, you know, it's one thing to watch a presentation. It's another thing to see the script. And you say to yourself, I don't think so. And I started saying, I don't think so. And then when I got to do the privilege of doing my second show, I was a co-producer. I got elevated all of a sudden. We want you to co-produce. I did this with Brock Yates, who's a pretty famous guy. And I interviewed George at his shop. And I listened to what he said. And in my mind, I kept my mouth shut. I said, I know so. It wasn't I think, I know so. He, He changed the story all the time. It got embellished. It got bigger and better for him. And I, you know, and I just... I didn't have an outlet. It wasn't until I started doing my own publication that I realized 
there's three sides of the story. There's his side, there's what I think, and then there's the truth that I'm going to find out. It took me a lot of years to figure it out, the so, truth. So what is it? The truth is that when I was 13, year old, 13 years old and I went to these car shows and I saw the little bastard sitting there, I was already a James Dean fan. I was hooked, but I was the only one standing there taking pictures. Nobody cared about it. Why? Well, we're getting into the late 50s and 60s. It was about drag racing. It wasn't about speed kills. It was about going faster, faster. Think about the music culture of the Hondells and Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys, you know, all those great records, you know, and uh, the, the cartoons, as I call them. And um, I think that the popularity of that car waned. And it wasn't making money for him. Plus the fact it was falling apart. <laughs> it was falling apart. He had redone the car a couple of times. I think he offed it. I think that he decided to get rid of it. And I, if I owned it and I had insurance on it and I wanted to play that game, then I'd try and collect the insurance. I'm not saying that's what he did, but that's possibility. And it disappeared. So then as time went on, all of a sudden people, con they contact you. I, this happens to me all the time. And I said, you know, I worked for Barris. That car was up on his roof under a tarp for years. But where did it go after then? Well, we don't know. And it, and it wasn't on his roof because I didn't have a helicopter to check it out. But I think, you know, I can simply say I think it went to the crusher. But, okay, if Barris was a guy and he, he had this, and he was, he, he was this great promoter and he loved to embellish and he loved to create ideas of curses, why would he, he just junk that car when he could make a fortune just breaking pieces off and selling them? Or, I mean, like, this is how that mind thought. Why? You're thinking in today's mega world, you know, uh, there's you know there's articles and probably in his own book it said they charge 25 or 50 cents to look at the car i mean you know we went i saw the beatles for dollars and 50 cents you know that that was a ticket back then it wasn't about making money back then because there's no money to be made i think the culture just can you picture james dean wearing bell bottom pants no <laughs> and that's yeah. what happened the culture changed and the teenage culture that was interested in that car got mature and the generation behind it was looking for something else. They were looking for Mustangs that went faster. Well, this is a this is a man with all due respect, Lee, this is a man who constantly has cars on display. Why didn't he just put it in the corner of a of one of his museums or, or whatever and just have it on display or sell it to someone? He knew someone would buy it. I've asked that question too, but I do know the car was falling apart. It became a liability. And not that not that somebody touched it and cut their fingers. It was just a liability. Uh, who knows? Do, do you think that George Barris realized that this story, this disappearing in thin air, would perpetuate for 50 years? I don't think so. I don't know. It, it did because they would always talk about it. You know, people were talking about it and it built and, and grew and even... I don't know. I, I And no one seems to know exactly what happened. And you have all these little side stories about the car being hidden in a wall somewhere. Right. Can you, okay, can so, you elaborate on that a little bit? And yeah, that's good. Let me, let me just, just say one thing. I've never said this before. 
before I finished the second book, Salinas, I called George, spoke to his daughter, got to speak to him. They all know me. And I said, George, I'm coming out to California to finish up some interviews. Why don't we have lunch and let's put everything up on the table and clear the air on this story. Then I didn't hear anything. I thought I lost the connection. I said, George, you there? I didn't hear anything. George, you there? He says, yeah, Lee, I'm thinking. He says, you know, you're a very bright guy and you figured out a lot of things that people haven't, but I like the story just the way it is. But we don't, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm just telling you. It, it, it was the end of the conversation. I don't know. That's why, see, I can't, it's hard. There's some things that just don't make sense about this. And that was, the entire thing was so interesting to me. And that's why I wanted to go forward and talk to you because I love your books and I love the history of Dean and, and the anatomy of the crash and all of that. And then, but just hearing these stories, there was something about it that was just really like, it didn't, yeah, okay, great. You know, he wanted this to be some kind of legend, but there was no real benefit from it. And it seems to me from talking to other people and getting perspectives that there is a possibility that, I'm, and I'm not saying, I mean, like I'm, I'm looking at everything from Alec Guinness to throughout the doctors crashing and all of that stuff and going forward and all the other stories that may have been embellished along the way. Why, why would he go through great lengths to hide it, junk it, do all those things when some other alternative could have been done? He could have been like, this is the cursed car. It could have been a sideshow attraction. He could have sold it to somebody. But what, what happened to it? You know, Christopher, I, I've asked those questions a million times. And I have to tell you, I, I'm the first person to say I made a mistake. And I've done that in my book. I've changed my mind. It wasn't James Dean's camera. It was Rolf's camera. I don't, you know, I'm, I'll am i step up to the plate. I made a mistake. I, I, this is what I think now. Initially, I thought the family got, you know, got to them and got rid of the car. They offed it, you know. But then once I met the family, and I've known them for over 25 years, I knew that that was an impossibility. They're not like that at all. They they wouldn't even think about something like that. You know, they're they're not vindictive or spiteful or anything. It wasn't about preserving James Dean's legacy. It was what it was, and they were never involved in something like that. But I said that on you know on on videos. I made that statement, and and I'm you know, am I embarrassed by it? No, it's because what I thought it was 25 years ago. Today. If I recognize George Barris for who he was, he was an icon. He was the king of customizing, but he also was a good shoe salesman. And he would he would sell the same shoe to all of us with a different size foot and get away with it. He was very good at that. And that's what happened in 2005 at the 50th anniversary. He offered a million dollars if you or you or you can find a part of the car and, you know, I'll pay you a million dollars, but I have to authenticate it. Well, guess Wait, what? Barris offered the million? Or yes, he it? did, to Volo. Yeah. So that was a publicity yeah, stunt. Volo was putting up the million dollars. No, it was George Barris. You know, Volo has a lot of George's cars, so they were partners. Right. They're partners. Yeah, George, look, look, first of all, it didn't matter about putting up a million dollars because it wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> really, that was just a ploy. I thought Brian Grams was the one that was putting up the million well, I don't know, but okay. let me just say this. Nobody found the answer, and they didn't pay out a million dollars. Well, at 
in 2010, they, on the 2015, on the 60th anniversary, George came back and said, and Volo came back, Brian came back and said, there's a car between two false walls in the state of Washington. And I said, and I knew George was sick at that point, and this was his last hurrah, he died two months later. I contacted the lawyer in the state of Washington representing um, the individual who said he was 10 or 11 years old when his father put this car behind the wall. And and he wasn't familiar with me and he wasn't familiar with my books. And, and we had another conversation after he saw what I had done and some more conversation about what I thought. And I said, you know, we're both attorneys. We both have an oath to the bar and a code of ethics. Do you want to risk your reputation on something that you can't prove? And he said to me, no. And that's why the whole thing got dropped. Wow. Sure. This wow. is fascinating just hearing you guys go back and forth about this. I know, right? I love it. This is how it always turns out. It's like, <laughs> now, listen, I, yeah. but I was hoping, I was hoping they were going to find it. What a story. Yeah. What a story. What a sure. story. Sure. They might still find it. They may, but I understand that building's been torn down. There was no car in the wall. So, oh, and, yeah, yeah. and that's also been three years. Let me just say one thing here. We're all concentrating on finding the little bastard. And maybe Christopher, I told you that I told you that I thought there was a more important car to find, and that was his speedster. And I've been working on that for 20 years. And I'm going to let you and your audience know something that no one else knows. This has been the great. car has been found. There's a huge story about it. It's being restored in Europe. Wow. And I'm and I'm going to write about it. I'm going to I'm going to bring this story to the forefront. Right. Because, I can't wait. wait. Because, your books are fantastic. Because it's a real. It's a real story. You know, it's now a real story. Wait, are you saying that the little bastard has been found? No, his original speedster. Oh, no, okay, speedster, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have another question here about this car and about the curse. Um, there was this warehouse fire, and little bastard yeah. was untouched or yeah. uninjured by this yeah. fire, but the fire took down other cars around it? Well, Christopher, you want to talk about that? Or Okay, so I am like you. I am the audience, and I heard all of these stories. They were fascinating to me. Uh, and obviously, you know, we were able to confirm the Estridge situation and Alec Guinness. And so all of that is the strength of this going forward. And there are a ton of these stories, like the one you're referring to. So apparently, uh, Little Bastard was stored inside a garage. I believe it was in Fresno. Yes. And the garage caught fire, burned to the ground. Everything inside of it burned and perished except for what was left of Little Bastard. This was like the Christine reference to me. And this yeah, is why yeah. I was so fascinated by the story. And, uh, you know, talking to Lee, Lee was, I, I needed to find somebody who did true, honest research on the entire thing. And Lee obviously is the perfect resource. His books are the perfect resource. So I wanted to speak to him. And um, I think it was confirmed that the fire did happen to what magnitude? I don't know. Can I please. can I read you the actual article? Yes, yeah, please. Okay. I, I have the actual article. It's in my book. It's on page 120, Chris. So let me just read it. Stated March 12, 1959. So this is great for me because 
I like the timeline of when the little bastard was on display. James Dean Dathcar is burned in Fresno fire. The sports car in which motion picture actor James Dean was killed September 30, 1955, was damaged by fire last night at 3158 Hamilton Avenue. The car still in the crumpled condition, which resulted from the fatal head-on collision, was stored here awaiting display at a safety exhibit in an incoming, I'm sorry, in a coming sports and custom auto show. The cause of the fire is unknown. It burned two tires and scorched the paint on the vehicle, period. End of story. Okay. That's far different from the place being burned down. It didn't happen. It was it was embellished. So it was a reporter. So that was his perspective. I'm just saying. I'm just cautious. Sometimes. This is from I saw the, an article recently that was written. That yeah, this is from the Fresno Bee. I mean, I didn't make it up. You know. So there you go. Okay. So the tires. So I, so were, I think. So yeah. I think that here, here's the point. It's like. After so many years, that story gets told over and over again. It just gets embellished. That's all. I'm not saying it's a lie. It just gets hyped. Sure. And, and, and again, those weren't particularly particularly my focus. What was, was, like I said, the major points in this were Sir Alec Guinness, Dean really getting in that accident, and then the two doctors. Those were enough for me to go. And the fact the thing disappeared and this really just this muddy area as to why it disappeared. Nobody seems to really know why. I, I respect your opinion, but it, it, some of it is, just doesn't make any sense. No, you know, that's that's why we're talking about this 63 years after the fact. Here's another fact that, that I stepped on. It, if, if, in fact, they had towed the car, they, they didn't, he didn't drive it. He towed the car, Ford station wagon, towing the car, everybody's in the station wagon. They, they probably wouldn't have had that accident because the, 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 because the Ford and the trailer were so far behind, they weren't going 90 miles an hour. But if they had been involved in the same accident, the Porsche probably would have been unscratched. And and, there, and Dean would have been killed because there's a Ford against a Ford and 3,000 pounds of metal would have protected him. But you know what? If if it hadn't have been a Porsche Spider, but it was just like a Volkswagen or a Triumph or an Austin Healey, it wouldn't have been as glamorous. Porsche is a Porsche. Everybody wants a Porsche. It, it's the whole thing that Porsche, if they hadn't survived and become the famous... They stayed at the gas car, station extra... 10 minutes he'd be alive but yeah he's not and all of this did happen so one of my questions is as i was watching the episode is where this curse came from why did it even start and it was touched upon that james dean had some at some point uh, connections or a link to a, a satanic cult or satanism yeah there was a curse placed on him apparently Vi- vampira placed a curse no. on dean no i never supported that idea uh <laughs> Vampire was a performer. And, uh, <laughs> here's where that, that idea came from in the construction of the episode. That didn't that didn't come from me, but I was willing to look into it. But not the vampire thing. I knew of vampire. I, she's a performer. She was Elvira before there was. Yeah, she Elvira. was. She was the gotcha. first Elvira. Uh, okay. But okay, so a little bit later, 
Anton LaVey, the writer of the Satanic Bible, he um, he claimed that he put a curse on Jane Mansfield's boyfriend, who was driving the car when Mansfield died in that horrible accident. And he took credit for that. Mansfield hung out with Anton LaVey, and her boyfriend did not like that, didn't like LaVey. And so LaVey, after the fact, claimed that it was his curse that killed them. Unfortunately, she was in the car, but he put a curse on, on, the, on the boyfriend. And, and that's where that idea came from. And I think, once again, it's, you know, I'm not a, a, a detective. I'm someone who just finds things to be interesting and curious. And I want to put that on display for the audience in the best way I can. I don't want to be one of the guys who over embellish things. Otherwise, I would have fed into the vampire thing, which to me is not a good idea. So I did, but the the stories are interesting. Yeah. And so to tell those stories and allow other people to tell their versions of the story is what interests me. I agree with Christopher. Yeah. And it starts back with Alex Guinness. I support that. I really do. It could have been the beginning of the curse. The other things that happened about the car and it, it you know, you touched it, you cut yourself, it rolled over somebody. I, I can argue all day long that a lot of that stuff didn't happen. But I like what Christopher said about Alex Guinness, and that was the beginning of the curse. And I don't believe in those things especially, but I do believe there are certain powers in this world that happen. And some people are more powerful than others. So are you saying that there is a certain energy that, that followed uh, Little Bastard? Yes, and uh, Joji said that, that George believed that, too, and Joji being uh, George Barris's, uh daughter um, in the episode that she said that her dad believed the car was cursed as well. I mean, I, I never met George Barris. Lee did. Uh, but what, just from listening to all of this, hearing I, I'm this neutral perspective, right? I don't have any personal attachment or bias to anybody involved here, and I admire and appreciate everybody. And so what I get from it is that it's very possible that George did believe the car was cursed and at the same time want to show it off and try and make money. The thing that doesn't make sense is that if he really did want to perpetuate the story of a curse, I personally don't believe he would have gotten rid of what was left of the car. I think he would have held on to it to at least for a later date, put it in storage, try and sell it to somebody, something. He was afraid the curse was going to get him. Right. That's the only thing I believe that maybe he really did. But he really bought into it. And who knows what he was personally going through? Who knows? Like he was having strange dreams or pains or like, I got to get rid of this thing. Yeah. I mean, we don't know that. And maybe he was too uh, proud or too much of a, a, a tough guy or whatever to tell people what he was really experiencing. And I always thought of this. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm saying it's a possibility. And I keep my mind open to that kind of thing. Like, what is someone personally going through? And what could explain this odd thing of this car disappearing? Uh, so those are my I, questions. I'm open-minded. You know, I really am. And uh, it's interesting to hear the perspective. And this is a tremendous opportunity to talk about it because I normally don't get this kind of conversation. Uh, the, you know, the public out there knows a little bit, but not a lot. And so it's it's nice to delve into it. It's a good forum. Um there's one thing that, you know, that George, uh, I think, respected me, but I think that he also was afraid of what I could do, and I never wanted him to feel that way. But I did tell him 
that, you know, you didn't paint the number 130 on the car or little bastard that Dean Jeffries did. And I made that very clear in everything that I've written. When George was taking credit and he did back off of it, and he said, well, you know, Dean was an employer. We shared space together over in Compton. You know, it's not like he, it's not like he said I'm really wrong, but you know, there were circumstances that where he probably watched Dean Jeffries paint that. But I happen to know that Dean Jeffries was a friend of James Dean and he did it as a favor. And he finally got credit for it before he died. And I'm glad that that happened. Well, you know what? It's it's such an honor uh, and like sort of privilege to be a part of like clearing up something that is yeah. so like steeped in folklore. I know. Like, and having this conversation, it, it's a uh, pretty impressive just getting you guys on the line and, and talking the about debate. this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we just sat back and watched, I think, m- most of this because it was just fascinating <laughs> yeah. to us personally. Um, so, yeah, I just want to thank you guys both for uh, for joining us here. I do have oh, one question uh, for, for, for Chris that's just been, it's on my, it's been on my mind for a while. Uh-oh. How are you not following me on Twitter? <laughs> How is I'm this not? a thing? <laughs> what do you mean? How is this? <laughs> really? Every day I wake up and I'm like, is <laughs> nope, not following me yet. Uh, I'm an old man. I'm still getting used to how to tweet. I'm older than you. (laughs) If if I may, if I may, I'd like to say one thing. This this is my eighth doc on James Dean, and this documentary is the best. It's the best because it, it goes both ways. It cuts both ways, and it wasn't hokey. You know, that Christopher honestly believed in something and this is his fulfillment, and I was—I feel honored that I was part of it. I, you know, I think it's uh, great. No, we—we we, thank you so much, Lee. Appreciate it. And thank you, thank you, Chris. <laughs> thank you. Okay. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening to this episode of Beyond Strange World. And don't forget to catch Strange World on Travel Channel at 11 p.m. on Mondays. Thank you very much. And drive safely. <laughs>